Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 385 featuring Matthew Giampa, uh, who is a head creative and VFX supervisor at Scanline in Montreal. Uh, Matthew is a very interesting person. I had never met Matthew before, so it was cool talking to him. Obviously, we've worked with the Scanline people for a long time, uh, so it was cool sort of talking to him about that and about the inner workings of Scanline and sort of seeing all the really cool stuff that he's been doing over in, in our Montreal office. Uh, Kristen, what did you think of Matthew? Yeah, uh, this podcast is awesome. He, uh, Matthew's career kind of has taken him a lot of places and he started off as a compositor and now a VFX supervisor. And he's just like the films he's worked on, just like everything from Journey to the Center of the Earth, Sucker Punch, Black Widow and Joker and uh, Cowboy Bebop, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> and it just has so many cool ones in the workings now. Um, but he also kind of talked about how I liked you guys talking about the invisible visual effects mm -hmm. and how he actually likes that more than just like kind of creating something crazy and obscure because there's no reference it's the invisible things that are actually like oh i had no idea so mm -hmm. um that was fun to hear about and then also as you said this podcast kind of gives us um knowledge about scanlines inner workings and then the transition when they were bought by netflix kind of also how they're working from home and how it's actually kind of harder right now with the junior artists uh to analyze their work because everyone is working from home um it's just hard to give certain reviews back. So that was an interesting take. It was, um, we haven't really heard that for a while on the podcast. So yeah, it's just a lot of good information in this. Yeah. It's, it's really good. It's good to, good to talk to him and sort of get his feelings about everything that's going on over at Scanline. I was just really fascinated by, uh, some of that work. And yes, I'm a huge fan of invisible effects. Uh, you know, if people, if, if, if people don't know that you did something, then you've won. Uh, yeah. then uh, that's kind of the cool thing that is interesting about it. Okay. We've got a couple of big announcements. Uh, the first one is that, uh, V-Ray 6 is out of uh, V-Ray 6 for Max is out. And before you start asking when it's going to be available for Maya or Houdini or whatever, don't worry. They are all coming out eventually. Uh, but uh, the schedule is actually pretty quick, so you should start seeing some of the other releases coming out. But for V-Ray 6, we've added a bunch of cool new things. Uh, we've added v -ray, uh, Chaos Scatter to it, so you can scatter stuff all over the place. Uh, uh, V-Ray decals on displacements. Uh, proxies uh, have uh, object hierarchy. Uh, new cloud system for the sky, uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff. So go check it out at chaos.com, V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max. Uh, events, we've got a couple of events going on. Kristen, what's going on? Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. We actually have two on July 28th. One is a free webinar, um, and it is about creating detailed exteriors in new, no time with V-Ray 6. Um, so that's a fun one. And then another one on July 28th is the Chaos Campus Live Show, which will be episode five. And Nikos and Georgie Zekov um, will be deep diving into Chaos Phoenix and Life in CG. So do not forget to check those out. Perfect. Remember, again, that is chaos.com slash events for all the deets on that. Uh, but if people want to know more about the podcast, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast and chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Perfect. And of course, if you have suggestions or questions or anything you'd like to contact us with uh, directly, you can just go labs. At, you know, our email is labs at chaos.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we would appreciate it. But for now, please enjoy episode number 385 with Matthew Giampa. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate you being on, and I appreciate uh, the, the, I really am looking forward to hearing our, <laughs> all of your stories uh, and to hear more about what's going on over at Scanline. Uh, but uh, let's start before we do that, let's start a little bit about from you, like what, what sort of got you into uh, either computer graphics or the film industry, or what was the thing that sort of motivated you that got you into your career, or was it completely by accident? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, uh, first off, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me join. Um, so, yeah, I kind of fell into it in a sense. Um, growing up, we kind of, my family had a computer at home. And, uh, you know, I started to kind of play around with it when I was a kid, going through high school and uh, starting to kind of do things with like, it was just actually MS Paint, kind of, you know, just drawing stuff and doing some school project stuff. And, um, you know, I never really kind of thought about getting into a career with art or anything along those lines. But uh, I finished high school and uh, I basically, my mom gave me a phone call once <laughs> and she was working at a, a college uh, at the time, it was called the Art Institute of Vancouver Burnaby, uh-huh. and uh, she said, "Hey, you know, I have I'm working somewhere that might be of interest to you, and you should come and check it out." So I did, and uh, kind of the rest is history. I went to school there, and I worked hard at school. I fell in love with what it was, and um, yeah, I just started working in the industry. <laughs> okay, well, how, that's pretty amazing. Uh, so, so what was what was some of the, like your your first job? Like, how what was your in to get into a, a job? Yeah, so at the time, um, I was living in Vancouver, and uh, it was pretty challenging at the time to get into the industry. There wasn't a whole lot of jobs What year was this around? Uh, this was around 2006. Okay. So things were starting to ramp up in Vancouver, but they weren't quite there yet, and so most of the stuff was actually happening still in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, so it's kind of it was a situation where it's the people you kind of know that can kind of help you get in. Um, I was lucky enough that out of school I kind of got a uh, contact um, from one of my teachers um, and uh, it was to go work on a very small show called uh, Three Moons Over Milford. Okay. Um, something that most people probably have never heard of. There's only one season of it. Okay. Um, but it actually was surprisingly a really, really great opportunity for me. Um, it was working with a guy named John Gadecki. Um, which is pretty well known in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure most people would kind of know his name at some point or another. He's been around for a while. Uh, and yeah, he, we were working actually on, we were working in a small kind of office space that was sort of on set. So he kind of, first opportunity, he kind of took me on set and kind of showed me what they were doing and how things work because I was so new. That's um, amazing. So got, a lot of people don't get to be on set that, that early. <laughs> No, absolutely. And so I got, I was very, very privileged to be able to kind of go on set and kind of see how they were doing things. And uh, he actually really kind of helped me out with a lot of things. He kind of showed me uh, past projects and like the bidding packages and how they kind of did stuff. Wow. And, and yeah, he, uh, he really got to show me a lot of the ropes in the industry and it was really interesting to see. Um, and uh, he was a very hard guy. He, um, you know, he would tell you how he sees it mm-hmm. and uh you know, he would be hard on you, but uh, it was a really, really awesome experience. And that was kind of my first in on in the industry. And I worked with him for six months. Um, and yeah, it was a really great experience. I was really, really fortunate to be able to kind of start my career with uh, with him. That's an amazing mentor for sure. I mean, you get to see a lot of things that people don't get to see for a couple of years out of their, out of their industry, right? So Absolutely. Most of the time yeah. you're just shoved into very, a dark lucky. corner and <laughs> figure it out on your own, <laughs> yep. right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of that as well. He was a pretty busy guy because mm-hmm. he was uh, on set supervisor. Uh, but then he was also just kind of doing the post um, with just a very small crew. There was like four of us that were kind of working together. And uh, so he's like, yeah, here's a shot board. Go nuts. And I'm like, I don't even know what any of this is at first. <laughs> you know what <laughs> right, I mean? Right, right. So I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we did that. And then once they wrapped up filming, we actually moved into a small, uh, it, was, it was an apartment space that was just above a garage. And it was the middle of summer in Vancouver, and it must have been to finish that show. <laughs> so it was wow! Bit, well, so yeah. what com- what company did you say this was for? Um, so it was actually not like a real. It wasn't really a company. It was uh, Three Moons Over Milford. It was actually um, a show where John was doing the um, visual effects supervising on set, but then he also had his oh, own so small for the show itself, like, exactly. Okay, yeah. got it. So he 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 put everything together, and then he closes it down um, once the show was over, and then he was on yep. to something else afterwards. So, yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was my start. Right. Yeah, that's a very unusual. I mean, I know obviously a couple of companies that sort of do that things. I know uh, Uncharted Territory sort of ramps up and ramps down in some cases, but I think it's interesting to see a VFX studio operate much more like an art department in some ways. So, yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool. Okay. So that that is definitely a plethora of inf- of, of experience in in your first six months in the industry. How did you how did you migrate that into something else? Where did you go from there? 
Yeah, so basically after that kind of all transpired, I uh, got uh, contacted by some people over at uh, a company called Frantic Films. Um, not oh, sure I know Frantic, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> way back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. and so Down in Los I, Angeles or? No, actually it was up in Vancouver. Um, oh, right, so, right. Yeah, so their original office was in Winnipeg and then mm-hmm. I think they moved down to Los Angeles as well. And then eventually they started opening up a shop over in uh, Vancouver. And so... Um, I was still over there at the time and, uh, yeah, I, I got contacted to see if I was interested in coming over there and, uh, helping them with, uh, I think it was white noise Two was the, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that was the first project that I was starting on. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, yeah, I said yes to it. Um, and it was a pretty great experience. That was, uh, it was white noise Two, And then it kind of transitioned into, um, uh, journey of the center of the earth, the original one. Yep. Um, I remember they worked on that. Yeah, so (laughs) I worked on that. Uh, There was a lot of long days and sleeping under the Mm -hmm. desks for those ones, uh, trying to complete Mm -hmm. it. But um, again, a really, really good mentor, um, Shane Davidson, uh, was my comp Mm -hmm. soup for that um, when I was there. And uh, I I owe a lot to him for what he kind of did for me when I was there. He definitely showed me the ropes. And it was kind of a funny experience. The first time I met him, he kind of came back from vacation and... um, he came back early to kind of help out to finish White Noise too, and he wasn't right. really happy about it because <laughs> you know he oh. he's coming back early from uh, from vacation that he was supposed to have, and he kind of looked over at me and he's like, "Who are you?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, right. my name's you know Matt. I'm a new compositor." And I was like, "He's like okay," uh, and he's like, I, "I just asked him like, would you like to see like my reel or anything?" Um, you know, I'm still new and young in the industry, and so. I asked him that and he looked at me, he's like, no, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to tell pretty quickly if you're good or not and walked away. Um, wow. But sure enough, uh, we became pretty close and, uh, you know, I ended up becoming staff over at Active Film. So I guess it kind of worked out in my favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah, it can be a little intimidating, I'm sure, especially being a little junior as you are and some guy comes like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, no, it was a, a really great opportunity there too. And um, I got the uh, a chance to kind of work with a lot of people that I still kind of see once in a while in the industry in different uh, varieties like different areas um you know today still um so you kind of you know get a good friendship from back then that still exists you know 10 years later 12 sure 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 so how long were you at frantic yeah so i was there through uh the transition when uh, prime focus actually bought them out Mm -hmm. um so yeah so i was there through that and i stayed for about five years um and then one of my last major shows was pretty much um sucker punch which mm-hmm. which was uh supervised by brian Hirota, mm-hmm. uh, who i actually work with today um still uh over mm-hmm. here at scanline and uh yeah so i stayed there for about five years um and then i worked on sucker punch with brian and he ended up going back to los angeles and he kind of contacted me and said he needed some help over at uh, Pixamondo um, in la and he was wondering if i was interested in coming down to la and as a 20 two-year-old kid i was like yep sure why not let's go down south and see what it's like over right. in, you know in hollywood and so uh yeah I, I ended up making the transition after that over to pixamondo down in la okay yeah so you were down what were you working on when you came to pixel yeah so at first i was working on uh, green lantern so i was helping him with that and then ironically enough i actually transitioned into my first comp supervisory role on journey the center of the earth 2 so (laughs) right the second one right yeah so i kind of got my start on a film film with journey and then you know supervising uh was kind of journey so it was kind of a an interesting thing that kind of transpired there so Mm -hmm. i jumped onto that and um i did journey two um there and then i ended up actually transferring over to um rhythm and hughes for six months oh um, wow okay yeah so this was towards the end were you on life of pi or uh, it actually Life of Pi was just ending, and okay. then I started working on Snow White and the Seven Huntsmen there for right. um, a couple months, and then um, after that, there was you know I was in conversations with them to stay, um, but things were a little bit interesting at that time over mm-hmm. at Rhythm Hughes. They were going through um, the bankruptcy and everything, um, so I ended up going back to Pixamondo uh, for uh, Star Trek Into the Darkness. Uh, yep. 
And I did that one uh, for a year there. And then after that, that's when I ended up transitioning over to um, Scanline. Which to Scanline. Did you go to Scanline in Los Angeles or did you go to the Vancouver office? No, I actually started in LA. Um, okay. So I was at the LA facility for, uh, I think I was there from 2013 till 2016. So I was there for three years. Oh, okay. Um, what was your first yeah. film at Scanline? Uh, it was 300, the sequel oh, right. to 300. Um, yep. I can't remember the full title name of it, but right, yeah. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that was my first experience. Uh, and then I moved on to, uh, what was the next one that I worked on? I'm trying to remember. There's so many projects in between. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you worked at Scanline for quite a while, so I'm sure. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been almost nine years now, so it's right. been a lot. Yeah, but, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I can't remember what actually. I apologize. I'm I'm kind it's of okay. blanking on. Did you what work the with Greg Sedilis? Show was at all. Uh, I've I've worked. I have worked with them a bit. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and Brian Grill, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Brian Grill. I yeah. uh, actually my first show with Brian Grill was um, San Andreas. Uh, oh, that's a great show. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, we were in the trenches together on that one. That was uh, a real grind of a project, but uh -huh. it was a lot of fun and. Brian, Brian Grell's a really, really fun guy. Awesome oh, guy he's one with. of my favorite people in the industry. He's, he's, uh, I've worked, <laughs> I work with him on day after tomorrow and I did so oh, many, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was with him uh, while he was still at DD and, and he's a wonderful, wonderful person, but yeah, he's been a scanline yeah. for a long time now. So that's really great. Really long time. Yeah. 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 And you know, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously being nominated recently and everything, yep. um, I was really happy to see that for him, and he's he's always a very fun, positive guy. Really happy, really. Oh yeah, he's really like a big teddy bear. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way to describe it for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, he's he's amazing, uh, and uh, it's really great. I mean, I've it's been so wonderful to see all these incredible things coming from Scanline, all this incredible talent that's been happening for a long time. And obviously, he said, you know, you've uh, uh, you've been there for nine years, so obviously you're seeing the benefits of that as being a nice nice good home for you uh so so but w i mean obviously there must have been at some point he was like hey that's an opportunity to go back to vancouver so <laughs> yeah i know absolutely so what so what it, what motivated that yeah it was just uh just looking for a life change um you know i had been down in la for about four years after that or i guess it was six years um, yeah, I was there for about six years in LA and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love LA. LA was really great, but uh, I just felt like it was time for a change. And, um, you know, I was kind of missing some th aspects to being home. You know, there's, uh, I'm a pretty big in outdoors kind of stuff. So like hiking and, and camping and, you know, kayaking and all that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was kind of missing a lot of that being back home in Vancouver cause it's so accessible there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I ended up going back to Vancouver, um, and I was working there for, again for i guess uh, another three years and then the opportunity to come out to montreal came up oh uh, so you're montreal now i didn't facility. realize you're montreal <laughs> yeah yeah so i've uh, i've bounced around on all the uh offices in north america so far okay all right, all <laughs> so, right. so yeah so when did you go yeah, to montreal no, I, what year you said I, I i came out here in uh 2019 oh okay um, so it was, yeah, I, I transitioned out once they opened up the facility. They asked, they were kind of looking for some help, you know, just to make sure that they had somebody that they knew and trusted over here in Montreal. And I said that I'd be happy to take the opportunity and go see another city and, right. and uh, see how it goes. And I've and been so here ever since. 2019 was around the time that Scanline opened uh, the Montreal office? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. And how has it been? Like, how was it? You know, obviously it was a big transition, a lot of moves and a lot of talent. I mean, how, how big is the office now in Montreal? Uh, I would have to double check on what exactly the number is now, but we're, I think we're around 150 people. Okay. Yeah. So not, so, not small. Uh, but <laughs> no, we were actually slightly bigger than that too before the pandemic. And so okay. I think we were around the 200 people market. Um, but yeah, I'd have to double check exactly what the number okay. is again, because things have fluctuated so much because of the pandemic and shows. And how did, so. how did the pandemic affect you guys in general? Yeah. Uh, so it was definitely an interesting situation for every facility. Right. But uh, it was something that Scanline was actually set up very well to uh, transition okay. to. Um, so one of the things that 
uh, Stefan had really originally done the owner of mm-hmm. Scanline. Uh, well, previous owner, now that it's been bought by Netflix. Right. Um, our, but our, our CEO. We call him founder. Uh, we can call him he, founder. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good one. Um, so, yeah, so he actually never had a setup where you would have a machine that you were working at at your desk. Right. It was all basically just PCO, PCO IP. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It was something that he had ever since I started at the facility. I think he's had that forever. Right. Um, so that was originally even down in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of those things. And, uh, and then once we transitioned into moving into Vancouver and then here in Montreal, it just made that transition easier to basically just open up shop because everything was still in LA and we just worked PCYP. And, uh, and so when the pandemic hit, we got some phone calls, obviously, from clients and stuff like that. And they were asking us kind of, um, you know, what's the plan for working through the pandemic? And, you know, fortunately enough, like we were able to say, like, it's easy for us to be able to transfer everybody working from home because we have a secure network that we currently work at mm-hmm. and we don't have machines at the office. So it, we can actually transfer people home and work from home if that's what's needed. Right. And um, yeah, so. We, uh, we were able to quickly transition into that. Um, clients were pretty happy about that, the fact that we were able to do that so quickly because a lot of facilities, I think, kind of scrambled to try to figure out how to make that work. Yeah. and uh, I've heard that and, a few uh, times, yeah. but I'm wondering, like, you know, how did they respond or how did Scanline even respond to the fear of the social leaking, right? Like if, like, someone's behind yeah. you or, you know, your spouse says something Absolutely. or whatever is going on, so... You know, it's really funny because it was one of those things where originally that was such a big, big thing with security, mm-hmm. right? And that's why you always had to go to an office. And nobody ever really wanted anybody working from home unless there was like strict like guidance or guidelines that they had to abide by. Locked doors, no windows, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for the most part, it's still the case that we still have specific things that we have to make sure that, you know, we go by. Yeah, you know, like we can't have like windows in the uh, rooms and stuff like that. Um, and so... But it was funny because their their fear of that kind of went away when they realized that their shows might not get finished in time. Yep. <laughs> so we kind of it, it transitioned from uh, we don't want this to happen because we're fearing that people will leak stuff to how are we going to get the show done? What is your plan? Right. And it's like we can have people working from home. And they're like, okay, great. And then it kind of the fear kind of went away. What's um, amazing is that it think, went away across the entire industry in some ways, and nothing yeah. really leaked. <laughs> No, exactly. And I think that, you know, you can uh, kind of credit that to like, you know, remote work the way that we have it set up where people aren't taking the actual physical work back home. So you can't just plug in, you know, a USB key and take whatever you have and then, you know, leak it. So, I mean, I guess you could theoretically kind of just like film something with your camera or something like that and leak it. But it just, yeah, I was... I would agree with you. I'm very, very surprised that nothing really did get leaked over this time because there's a lot of people working from home now. Um, but I think it was actually a really good test for the industry too, to see if it's a possible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, you have so much talent, so many different places around the world and having them to try to relocate all the time just to work for your facility is always a challenge. So I think that it was a good test and it proved to be really successful and it gave us now the ability to be able to hire worldwide and not have to require people to come to a specific location to work. Right. Um, and so it kind of broadens our, you know, our horizons to be able to hire more people in different areas. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. And what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, obviously you, you're, you're in Vancouver and Montreal for specific tax reasons now. If, what does that imply for remote work and people working from anywhere? Does that imply that they can work in the Montreal office and still be in New York or wherever else they want? Or how does that work? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know the logistics of the uh, tax credits sure. and everything, because um, that's something that there's another department yeah, of for. Course, yeah. uh, but for the most part, uh, so from my understanding, it's like, obviously, um, the there's still, uh, you know, for the tax incentives, say, for example, in Montreal, like you have to be a citizen of Quebec to be able to qualify for those tax incentives for those people. Okay. Um, and so obviously there's things that we have to kind of work around with those type of logistics, sure. but there's tax incentives in so many different cities and, um, countries now that I think that you can kind of work it. So it's like, okay, well, like, you know, there's tax incentives here and there's tax incentives right. here 
and this is where these kind of work and so we can kind of work it um, based off of like obviously needs on shows and what shows requirements are for those tax incentives so yeah it's definitely a little bit more challenging but like prime example is like there's tax incentives in Toronto or Ontario compared to Vancouver to here you know Georgia yeah but you could hire a couple people in Ontario and still get those tax incentives yeah exactly so there's still ways to be able to kind of do it and I know that like you the UK has good tax incentives as well and so and we right. obviously have an office there now too, but uh, right. yeah. So there, there is still a need to be in certain locations, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a location where uh, Scanline has an office or a facility. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure, so. sure, sure. I think that's really interesting. I think you know, like I think that this, there has been some interesting disruptions with the work from home situation in the industry, and I think it's really interesting to see what are the benefits for people and and how people are justifying it. I think. Obviously, there's some challenges as well. Like how, how, you know, how, what was it? What were some of the challenges for you? You know, in in the Montreal office, obviously, you weren't there very long before they shut down everything and you can't be at people's desks anymore. So how did that work for you as a supervisor? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it definitely had its challenges, right? Because it's nice to be able to just go to somebody's desk and have a conversation with them, see what they're doing and, you know, talk to them about stuff and give them direct feedback. Whereas... Now you kind of have to basically pick up a phone and call them and say, hey, how's it going? What are you working on? And figure that stuff out. Um, You know, I thought that that transition was going to be a little bit more difficult than what it actually was. Um, I was pretty surprised, especially at the beginning. There was definitely a lot of uh, people that were working still very hard at home and it was easy to kind of communicate still. And um, Scanline has a software that it's called iLine um, that we use for meetings and reviewing and everything as well. So um, that makes things a lot easier for reviews and it's just all kind of remote now. But the one thing that I would say that has been really, really difficult and we're starting to see a lot more now is we're starting to kind of get out of the pandemic and, you know, seeing about having people coming into the office is like you have a lot of these younger kind of people coming in that may not necessarily have as much of experience as, you know, some of the other people have been in the industry for years that aren't able to just have that conversation with their, you know, the person they're sitting next to saying, Hey, I'm having difficulties with this. What would you do to kind of fix this or whatever the case may be? Like mm-hmm. you actually have to physically pick up the phone, but if you don't know anybody that you're necessarily working with, cause you never met them, the chances of you picking up that phone and asking them is very slim, you know? And uh, right. I think that's really challenging for like new people getting into the industry with everybody working from home. Um, and then there's also just the fact that as a supervisor, there's sometimes where that you might, be working with somebody, you know, and be like, oh, this person's actually like a lot more advanced than I thought they might be. And you can kind of see it in, with their interactions at the office. Whereas if they're working from home, you don't really see a lot of it and you don't really talk to them as much. And then you just see what they're producing, but you don't know how long it's taken. You don't know how they got there or whatever the case may be. So right. it's a little bit harder to kind of analyze how good somebody's been doing or whatever the case may be. And people that mm-hmm. might need to you'd be like, hey, this person's really improved and we should definitely get them onto this next show because they're great at this and or whatever the case may be. Um, and so it's a, it's been a challenge that I've been trying to think of how to kind of resolve. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, we would love to do is try to encourage people to come back into the office. Like, you know, not, it's never, we, I don't think we're going to ever require people to come back to the office. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's more, we like the remote work, but I think we're going to encourage people to come in once a week, once a month or something just to kind of get familiarized with the people that you're working with and, you know, feel more comfortable about just picking up the phone and contacting somebody that you might know and you've become friendly with and say, Hey, I'm having troubles with it. Do you mind help me out with it? And that's one of the ways we're going to do that. But yeah, um, I think that's probably been the biggest challenge. uh, I think you're right. I've heard it from several people that junior, junior guys are the ones that are they're suffering. They're not getting the experience of the interacting with people or the ability to ask for help the same way is, is very challenging, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate. And there's, I think there's something to be said about that kind of like environment that we used to work in where it's like you're going for reviews or dailies in the theater room where you have a big projector and everyone's kind of sitting there and you're having discussions about shots and people are allowed to kind of, you know, give their input and feedback on certain things. And, what their thoughts are on it and you you know you still get a little bit of it because we're all on calls but you just don't get the same type of environment because you're looking at it on a monitor rather than a big screen 
Uh, or How has that been? I mean, you're obviously a big comp guy, and you know when you're looking <laughs> in the screening room and 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 you know what you know, calibrated color or some kind of other like, what's your what has your, been your challenge of looking at things on a, on a monitor at home compared to a screening room? Yeah. Okay. So I, I might get in trouble for saying this because <laughs> I think I'm a, I think I'm a little bit different than a lot of people. But to me, the calibrated monitor and working in the dark that we used to do back in the day, I think was a bit overrated. Um, I, I, honestly, I think a lot of it, as long as you're kind of matching colors, like you know, one way or another, if a client says something's too blue, but on your screen it may not look that blue. If you look at your values and if they're saying that they feel like it's too blue, then you just shift a little bit of blue out of it and you can adjust and tweak accordingly. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I think there's definitely a value in seeing things with a calibrated, you know, monitor or a projector that's calibrated to see it, how it's supposed like truly should be seen. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a lot that can be done with it. Um, with, you know, even just the monitors that you have. Granted, we do have calibrated monitors and everything. Obviously, we have the dream color monitors at home Mm -hmm. over reviewing stuff. And so we are seeing it hopefully in proper color, but yeah. Um, but you don't yeah, have someone just, coming by and knocking on your door and calibrating your monitor at the same time. No, I, you definitely don't anymore. And so, yeah, yeah, I, but I think the biggest challenge with it is always like, you know, your, your, your uh, dream color monitor is a 24 inch monitor. Right. And, um, right. you know, I've kind of set myself up so that I can kind of switch over to a 65 uh, inch t- uh, television. So at least I can right. see it larger because I think one of the more challenging things, surprisingly, is less of the color and all that kind of stuff. It's more of like just picking up on things like maybe a bad roto shape or, you know, something doesn't look right over here, but you just don't see it because it's smaller than what you typically final right, right. like final things with. So I think that's where the biggest challenge came in. And then, you know, looking at a TV, obviously, you're, you're not going to ever get your television calibrated properly enough to. I, w- I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, you guys are doing a lot of streaming stuff as well that's happening or everyone is right. And a lot of things that's yeah. going on on TV. And and, you know, all these TVs are all have HDR mode and everyone's got whatever color. Most of them poor choices in color and, and frame. Yes, count. very poor choices. <laughs> put, it in my, put in my color and vivid. You know, it's like, no. So, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, I mean, but it's really hard. I mean, to sort of like think about like. You know, because I I knew that when I was first in the industry, I was still I was still doing film back then, right? So we knew exactly. Okay, it's film. It's got this range in the theater. It's going to look like this. After when it goes to TV, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't care anymore. But nowadays, it's like kind of all over the place. So it's got to be a challenge to sort of think about color and some of that. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and I, you know, I kind of wonder about things too. A lot of times, where a lot of people are just looking at it, like you said, on these televisions with different colors and it's like vivid mode and they have these like true motion settings like all this crazy stuff and you know i thought about it and i was like well whatever i see and agree that i think that looks right i bet you everyone's going to see it completely differently once we put it into streaming if it's not a film that's going to theaters right um so you know obviously the color still matters and everything along those lines but um it's uh it definitely seems like a a different uh, environment when it comes to how you're color correcting stuff or how things look yeah. usually to you because that people aren't going to see it that way. They're going to see it a very different way because yeah, of their yeah, television. Yeah. Um, well, as a, but, as a cinephile, I'm just happy to like, there's now like there's TV or streaming networks that will, if they have something in their per, good color, they actually force your TV to go to cinema mode like or to that. Oh way. really? Or direct. I think it's called, well, I forgot. It's, there's a specific mode that was developed that Tom Cruise, believe it or not, was one of the people championing this this mode. It's oh, a TV. Yeah, it takes your TV to the the proper frame rate and the proper dynamic range and you know colors, which to most people looks too warm and too dark. <laughs> yes, but 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 uh, but it's. Uh, but it's great. And then you can say, oh, finally, I can see, you know, saving Private Ryan correctly, you know, so whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of times, you know, you get a new television or something. I've had the same thing where you get it at first and you're like, I'll calibrate it later. I'm not, uh, you know, I might not have time. And yeah. You start watching it for a little while. And even for sports, like seeing things bright and stuff is 
it's kind of nice. Yeah. But then, yeah, you kind of like, okay, I'm going to do a calibration on my television and put it in cinema mode. And you look at it, you're like, oh man, this looks so different and so warm. So but at the same time, like once you start to get used to it, you're like, yeah, this looks more natural and right. correct for what it should be, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that, uh, you know, that was, uh, I think it's called creator's even... mode or I forgot what it's called. I'm, I'm blanking on it, but I'll, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll definitely have to look that up myself too. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. very interesting. It's cool. It's cool. Okay. So, uh, so let's talk about some of your more recent projects at Scanline and some of the things you've worked on in the, in the last, you know, since you've moved to Montreal, what are some of the big things that you worked on? Uh, yeah, actually that's a, that's a really good question. So, um, once I came out here, um, I got really lucky. I, uh, got my first opportunity to become, or to be a VFX supervisor. Nice. Um, uh, yeah so and it was on the joker actually um, oh great which, show yeah yeah i was uh really excited about that one when they asked me if i was interested in doing it and um yeah we did it all in-house here in in montreal mm -hmm. and um it was uh it was a really great experience i had a lot of fun and i was really fortunate uh to have that as my first opportunity to supervise um well were some of the things that you guys are doing uh on the joker yeah, so it wasn't anything too uh, crazy. So it was a lot of set extensions mm -hmm. and just kind of cleanup work and adding things like graffiti and all that kind of stuff. There was very little 3D that was involved in it. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. There definitely, yeah, there definitely was some, but it was pretty minimal. So um, it was kind of a little bit more orientated to my background of uh, compositing. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of worked out in my favor, I think. Right. <laughs> but yeah, like... Obviously, some of the extensions, um, you know, uh, they were, they were, some of it was 3D, but then a lot of it was just like paint over with uh, um, DMP. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was um, a lot of uh, invisible effects. You weren't supposed to know about it. And I think those are some of the most underrated things that happen, uh, for sure. And it sounds to me like Scanline, it was not by accident that they decided, we'll make him a VFX supervisor on something that is totally in your wheelhouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, I'm pretty sure they were pretty smart. Actually, I give them a lot of credit because they've, uh, they've picked a lot of projects for me that were like, okay, we're going to start you off with what you know. And then it's like, okay, we're going to dip you a little bit more into stuff that you may be a little bit less familiar with. Or, you know, obviously I'm familiar with like 3D and stuff because we've done so much visual effects stuff here um but you know it's that, like my background's just not 3d so you know eventually they gave me a little bit more and a little bit more and it's kind of just progressed and and as long as i continued to um achieve what they needed uh they kept on seeming to give me more um you know with uh, 3d aspects to it so um i've been really fortunate they were kind of they they kind of slowly put me into the role rather than just dumping something big on me and saying figure it out you know right um so I, i'm really appreciative of that so just to make sure that it would work out because if it didn't work out you're like okay maybe we shouldn't do this anymore and just go back to being comp supervisor <laughs> right right no well i'm sure I, you know i've i've seen some incredible growth and talent from scanline and i just think uh, i know i definitely know they know how to maximize the best talent out of their people for so that's definitely definitely a true true statement so but yeah. but like going back a little bit actually i'm fascinated why what what got you into compositing like when you started going to school you know back then i know we're going back a long time <laughs> oh, yeah. why did you say i want to do compositing like that was the thing that got you into it you know what i uh i didn't actually choose compositing originally like i i basically went for to see a counselor at the school mm -hmm. and he's like what do you kind of like to do and i was like well i don't know like i like to kind of i did some painting and drawing in school or like in high school mm -hmm. Um, you know, I did a little bit of like digital stuff on, on computer, but, um, it was, you know, just kind of putting things together in Photoshop and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then they kind of looked at it and said, you know what, we're going to put you in, uh, compositing for visual, uh, for visual effects and film right? or TV and film. And, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And then I got into it and then, you know, most people, did you know what that like, actually that, meant? Especially, <laughs> when not really, no, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, back then, basically what everyone kind of talks about is animation, right? It's animation, oh, right, animation, course. animation, yeah, yeah. Pixar and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So when you're a kid that doesn't know anything about the industry, uh, a lot of you're just thinking animation. That's kind of the only thing you kind of think mm -hmm. of, right? And then, you know, went started going to school. You know, we got a bit of, uh, you know, training on things like Maya and stuff like that back in the day um, and doing a little bit of animation and a little bit of modeling lighting rendering and and texturing and stuff but uh it was very heavily focused on compositing um and i actually just enjoyed it and i looked at what animation was and stuff and it just really wasn't an interest to me mm -hmm. um 
And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of just fell into it. Um, I don't know how else to really put it. Right. Wasn't it's not the most exciting? Oh, I, don't, <laughs> reasons, I disagree. But, I think uh, compositing is a, is an incredible talent, and it's lo- and you know, especially if you look at what you did on on the Joker, it's like that's the that's the magic of compositing is how good you can make it so no one even knows you were there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you know, I, I definitely lean more towards like the the vis- uh, the invisible visual effects. Mm-hmm. I, I like stuff where it's like this is what it needs to look like. Just make it look that way. You know, Um, a lot of times where it's like, let's do something crazy and creative and wild. It's like, okay, like I'm happy to do that kind of stuff. And it's fun at times, but it's just not as grounded. So there's so many different opinions on what it should look like. And it's kind of arbitrary, you know what I mean? And it's to what somebody else thinks looks good, not necessarily what actually does. Whereas, you know, if you have a physical object that you have to match to, it's like, well, there's no questioning what it is. It just needs to look like that, you know? Um, right. So, yeah. So, I definitely like that kind of aspect about it before, a lot better. So, yeah. So, yeah. I, I did Joker. and Interesting. Yeah. And then uh, after that, I got the opportunity to work on um, on uh, uh, Black Widow, actually. Um, okay. And so, I was kind of... I had to go on set while I was still working on uh, the Joker for Black Widow. Um, oh wow! Over okay. in the UK, and uh, yeah, I got. Was that the? That's not the first time you were on set since. The, uh, no, actually, it yeah, it was actually. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was a long time in between actually being on set again. So yeah, so they, interesting. Yeah, and I had to prepare myself for it, and I was also kind of still in the mode of trying to final. Uh, you know, the stuff for Joker Joker stuff. And yeah. so, you know, it's like, I was actually, I worked literally until 2am on Joker. Um, I went to straight to the airport and I got onto a plane and I went straight over to the UK and, um, I met up with, uh, the client over there at, I think I, I think it was around six thirty their time, but like I had to stay mm-hmm. up and then I was with them until about nine thirty ten, And then I had to go back to the hotel, which was two hours away from, uh, where they were um, on set and filming, yeah, filming, yeah. and uh, and then I had to review uh, a bunch of stuff for the Joker that night. So I, I think I was up oh for about thirty six or thirty eight hours straight just to get through that. Oh. <laughs> so it's uh, wow, yeah, it was uh, it, it was a really fun experience. You know, honestly, um, it's crazy. Sometimes the hours could be in that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm more mm-hmm. than happy to do it because it just kind of it keeps you busy too, right? <laughs> sure, um, sure, sure, sure. So what was some of, some of the stuff that you did on uh, Black Widow? Yeah, so I'll, a lot of it, again, was uh, set extension stuff. So we did uh, a whole mm-hmm. environment. So we did the bridge sequence. I'm not sure if you actually seen the show. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the the Taskmaster reveal, I guess, essentially, um, when he mm-hmm. when uh, she fought uh, Taskmaster on, on, the, on the bridge. Um, so we had to come up with the entire environment that was based, uh, that was supposed to be just in Norway. Um, so we created mm-hmm. a, a 3d environment. It, the whole thing was completely 3d. Um, it was a, a 360 degrees. Uh, you could fly anywhere in it. And then, um, they had a big chunk of the bridge, um, uh, built on set over in London. And then we had to do an extension of it. And uh, mm-hmm. so we did that battle, um, and that was the big chunk of it. And we had to basically flip a car, make it explode. <laughs> uh, and, yep. uh, yeah, so that was, I'm trying to, that was pretty much most of it. We also did a little bit of set extension on the, um, the safe house, which was when she was in the trailer. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. so a lot of the background was all uh, matte painting and then we also had to kind of reduce the amount of uh, like fog they had in the uh the right. plates and stuff like that so it was uh again it was a lot of like invisible but there was a lot more effects and full cg that um was in I, there absolutely i'll tell you know it's funny i i actually i worked on uh a girl with a dragon tattoo which also had a a bridge sequence and a car flipping and exploding. <laughs> Great movie. I love that movie. That was Good. really well done. And, 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 uh, and that was all done in CG as well. And people didn't even know it. And, you know, to me, that's exactly like that. The hide you get of like, people don't even know that this is all CG is like the real fun of it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> like uh, I, especially with the Joker, uh, again, going back to that, I, I got a mm-hmm. lot of questions like, what did you guys even do? And uh, I was like, well, 
this is all fake and this is all fake. And they're like, I never had any idea that that was all fake. And so you're right. Like there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Whereas, you know, it's fun and as cool as some of these like, you know, big Marvel movies can be where you got like, you know, Mm -hmm. crazy effects and like, you know, um, stuff that's a little bit not realistic. Uh, it, it, there's just something to be said when somebody's like looks at it and like I had no idea what you what you did there. Um, that's yeah. really really satisfying. I mean, I remembered it was you know sort of going back to uh, your 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 story about uh, 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 rhythm and hues during the whole Life of Pi fiasco days when when the visual effects industry was suffering and they were you know rebelling against the industry in a lot of ways. Uh, and then some people were responding it's like, well, I don't really like CG. I don't like movies with CG. I prefer movies like Lincoln. And then someone showed, responded with a picture of Lincoln in front of a giant green screen. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> Do you think he just teleported them to the past? Yeah. No, that's all CG behind. Exactly. So, so, so yeah, it was kind of interesting. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, people don't realize how much of what they're seeing on TV is, is manufactured in some ways. Yeah. So, yeah. It's amazing. And even shows that, um, um, wouldn't even really necessarily require uh, visual effects. Like there's always a mic boom that needs to be removed or, you know, yep. something else that needs to be removed in shots that people just don't like. And, you know, coffee cups that yeah. should be removed in something like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, like in Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. That's right. And it's so funny. Like they actually removed it like the next week. It wasn't gone. Yeah. The shot. I was like, that, that is a strange world we live in. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. It's, it's completely crazy. So, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, well, well, cool. Okay, so uh, so uh, uh, Black Widow was uh, was a great show as well. That was fun. And then, uh, what was your next uh, supervising gig after that? Yeah, so I kind of co-visual effects supervised on Suicide Squad two through the pandemic. Okay. Um, that was yeah. Well, I finished up uh, Black Widow at the beginning of the pandemic, and then we transferred over to right. Suicide Squad two. Um, I mm-hmm. was co-supervising with uh, Brian Hirota on that one, actually. Um, so, okay. and, uh, so I work closely with him, which I've done quite a bit in the past. Uh, we've worked together quite a lot. Uh, right. and, uh, yeah. And so I did that show. And then after we finished that, I actually moved over onto uh, cowboy bebop. Um, oh, nice. And, yeah. And so that was my last one that I completed. Um, and then I'm currently working on a new project right now, which, um, not really quite able to You're not ready to reveal that's okay yeah. we'll have to <laughs> snoop around imdb and see if any shink shows up <laughs> yeah i'm sure but uh yeah another uh new netflix um uh show that's coming out i think it's gonna be awesome time next year or something along those lines but i'm not totally sure exactly when it is but uh, what was it like working on cowboy bebop oh it was uh it was very interesting it was really uh it was a really cool show and obviously there's a huge following with the anime right um, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the best animes I think that has been done. Um, it, uh, so yeah, so it was really kind of exciting to try to work on that. And, um, it, it the client was really great. Um, obviously working with Netflix, this was actually before the, um, before we were, we got purchased by them, um, that we were working mm-hmm. on that. Um, so it was a little bit of a different dynamic, <laughs> uh, but, right. uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, I, I, it was just a lot of fun. It was, um, you know, kind of a goofy show. Um, with like some kind of crazy ideas, obviously, as you can see in the anime. And um, mm-hmm. it was really nice too, because they tried to keep true to the anime as much as they possibly could. And, and there was a lot of shots where you kind of looked at them and you're like, okay, like the framing is pretty much one-to-one with what the anime was. And it's uh-huh. like a, a lot of like very locked off cameras, which I was grateful for because things like tracking, roto, yep. anything is a lot more easy when you don't have cameras going all over the place. Um, right. So yeah, so I kind of jumped on the opportunity to work on that and I got to work with some really great people on it and it was a lot of fun. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's, a, that's awesome. Well, I, I, was, I, I remember the anime when it came out. I was so excited about it. And then so... It's really cool that you got to work on that. Well, let's. So obviously, you can't talk about your newer project, but you did mention, you know, the Netflix thing. Uh, so, so when did when did that happen? Tell let, let people know a little bit about that, and what are what are some of your thoughts about that? The whole you guys being part of Netflix family now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty exciting time for us. Um, you know, obviously things were challenging through the pandemic and everything, and mm-hmm. um, we didn't really know anything about it. And then I think it was. Oh, I'm trying to remember when it was actually announced, announced, but there was a day, I think it was in, was it November? 
think it was. It, um, it sounds about right. When yeah, I think out. it was November. Uh, we just got a random message from Stefan, um, mm-hmm. and he was basically like, "Hey, we want a company-wide, uh, you know, meeting." And so mm-hmm. everyone's like, "Well, that's kind of weird because we never have like company-wide meetings." Uh, okay. We all jumped onto Eyeline, and he kind of announced to us that um, we were transitioning uh, over to be part of Netflix team uh, and their okay. family. And um, you know, it was uh, it was a pretty exciting time. I think um, you know, look, I think Stefan has done an awesome job with Scanline up to that point, and you know, I think he just uh, he just thought it was the right time to you know, transition over to something, you know, bigger. Um, and we get a lot of support from Netflix. And I think that they really believed in his vision and what he wants, where he wanted to take the, the company. And, right. uh, and so they were pretty excited about it. And I think that it's been really good for us. I think um, in the long run, it's going to be a lot more stable. You know, I, I feel like a little bit less now than it used to be, but the visual effects industry has always been a little bit unstable in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, companies and, Obviously, as you've seen as well, um, mm-hmm. like DD going through different purchases and, yep. uh, you know, Rhythm and Hughes going under, um, DNAG being bought. Uh, so, yep. you know, there's 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 always some questionable things. And obviously, there's always uh, a little bit of, well, what does this really mean if you're getting purchased? But like, again, Netflix has been extremely supportive of Scanline and they've kind of kept us as like our own separate entity. So we're still running as in operating as what we were before as scanline we just have a little bit more support from them and obviously they will be able to feed us work if there's ever times that we're slow and obviously even when we're not slow we're definitely gonna be working on a lot of netflix stuff but uh we're also lucky that we're gonna have the ability to work on shows from other event um other facilities or studios okay. as well um so i think it was a, a really good thing i'm pretty excited about the future with what they've been doing and you know what they've been kind of planning to do uh it's been pretty good but it's always a little bit you know you always have those questions i've been through the the transition before obviously when uh frantic films got bought by uh prime focus and Mm -hmm. uh so and then being around you know uh rhythm and hughes around the time it wasn't really a a buyout but it was uh you know different you know turn of events there you kind of know that there's a lot of like uneasiness at the time but uh again i i think that they did a really good job and you know the you know, we've been growing still and we've been looking at uh, expanding some mm-hmm. things and, and improving on network and facility wide things as well with uh, with Netflix being a part of it now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing I did, the big difference between that is that Scanline was purchased by Netflix at at one of its highs, not because it was going down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, so, absolutely. Yes. So that makes a big difference and that brings value to what you guys are doing. Uh, I do what you mentioned, you mentioned iLine, but it's, iLine sounds like it's a communication tool between, uh, you know, that you guys use between your company, but you guys also have another company called iLine as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So yes, for sure. So it, it's kind of, it's a branded thing with like what we kind of use uh, the software that we use internally to review stuff and have meetings and whatnot. But then there's also the iLine studios, which is a virtual studio that mm-hmm. um, um, Stefan had started to develop, which I think was also very exciting for, for Netflix uh, when he was starting to do that. Um, right. It's really cool. I, uh, I haven't had a whole lot of experience in it yet. Um, Cause none okay. of my shows have really utilized it, but I do know I've seen a lot of the work that they've been doing with it and, it's pretty impressive on what you can kind of accomplish with it. Um, there's a lot of things that like prime example, it may sound a little bit crazy, but like a face replacement shot kind of thing, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, there's some things where you literally just, uh, can't have, uh, an actor do. And so you have to have the stunt double, but like, obviously a lot of times doing a face replacement sort of thing is, uh, really challenging, but it's made it a lot easier with the virtual studio, um, that we can Interesting. So um, I, it's it's pretty impressive, and I, I think we'll be seeing a lot of stuff that's been coming out of it um, in the next uh, probably year or so um, that right. will probably surprise some people, and I think it's a really cool technology to kind of see. Well, as someone who sort of has the, the lens of a compositor and, and, and the way that you think about things, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, how the industry is utilizing virtual production and real-time technology? What are some of your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's actually really impressive. It, it's it, it's pre- it's definitely impressive too because I know that back in the day, if you tried to do something similar, you'd always get that rear projection feel to it. But I yep. think with these new LED screens that they have and the technology that they have, it, it really kind of eliminates that feeling. Sometimes, um, I think the, 
yes. Sometimes. sometimes. I've seen it where it's very obviously not. <laughs> yes. And I think uh, as long as you plan it right, like the Mandalorian looked phenomenal. And I think oh, absolutely. they utilized the technology yeah. very, very well. But I've also seen things in that. I mean, I'm not going to name also, names, but there's been some shows like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly, I think there's also a lot of challenges with it, too, because like uh, a prime example is, I guess, depth of field. Right. Um, yeah it's you have a screen and you know your camera can only capture you know to where that screen is where you might need to capture even more so your depth of field might be off or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. um but it's really interesting too because i know now like you can kind of develop an environment and then you can project it on these um you know the on the um led or led screens and uh basically uh have like people act in front of it and then you can still change it in post it's a lot more kind of tedious work because obviously you don't have a green screen to replace anymore, but the benefit you have in it is you're getting proper lighting from the environment onto those actors. And as long right. as you kind of keep true within like what that lighting environment is, I think it's so much more beneficial than having a blue screen or a green screen. Cause yeah. every time you, you know, like if you have proper lighting coming from above from a sky or whatever the case may be, like before you'd have all the spill then you have to get rid of the spill, but then you have to like try to blend in some of the color from the environment into it, try to make it look right. But you have weird set lighting that doesn't really match. And so now you're faking things in the background to kind of make it. It, it just got, it sometimes gets very messy. Sure. It wasn't planned out properly. And uh, it always looks fake, um, you know, if you don't get it right. And I think this really kind of helps eliminate a lot of that. Um, yeah. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen a lot of LED wall sort of demos or demonstrations from different places. And one of the things that they do is, is, um, is to have the whole environment except right in the frustrum of the camera to put a green screen so that they can yeah. put a, you know, a higher quality background in there. But the, the subject gets all the lighting of the environment. Uh, but as a compositor, like how did, like practically speaking, give me the honest truth. Like if that really works, you still have that edge of glow green that you have to get rid of, right? <laughs> yes, it definitely does for sure. So that is one of the problems you have, but the nice thing about it is you don't have just such a huge broad, uh, you know, green screen that is right. just flooding your environment with green, right? Or right. blue. Um, so if it's isolated, at least you're kind of isolating it to one specific area. Although unfortunately that's usually the focal point of whatever the shot is. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, but you, know, you get you a general lighting is better, much better than it was. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I still think at the end of the day, it's significantly better than what you would get if you just put up a regular blue screen or green screen right. and said, yeah, we're going to film this. Right. Um, Cause you just don't get as much spill, but yeah, it, it still has its challenges and you still have to try to do some manipulation to make it work but right. um, definitely sits in a lot better than what it would otherwise yeah well i mean they've been doing this for a long time I mean, rear projections have been around for a long time so this is just super fancy yeah. rear projection <laughs> yeah you know it was really funny when i started to see like some of these companies starting to use it and like the mandalorian stuff i'm like man like we're going way back uh yeah. to like you know years and years ago like we haven't tried this kind of stuff in a while and I think it's just uh, the idea that you can get the parallax to work better now. So that's the the big change, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I, and you know, obviously like things like Unreal uh, 5 has definitely helped kind of push this stuff along because you can kind of get a lot more realistic looking environments in a very quick manner. Um, you know, and again, if the environment isn't 100% right off the bat, they can still start filming. They have a very good general idea of what the environments could be, what the lighting is. And then you can always go and enhance things later uh, right. in the future when, you know, in post and stuff. But it's also, uh, you know, it's also a lot more demanding at early stages of the project as well, right? Because now you have to spend three to four to five months or six months doing an environment before they even start filming. I don't and know. You Do you kinda... think that's a bad thing? Because that means that they have to make choices before they just save it for later. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you would hope that they would make them make choices, but unfortunately it doesn't always work that way. Right. Sometimes they'd like to change their mind still. And then you have to figure out how to, I think that that's problem. a sign of a bad filmmaker, someone who can't, <laughs> <laughs> or a lazy we filmmaker, were, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, you know, we worked with so many, I'm sure you've probably have too, like so many different uh, supervisors and stuff uh, or like clients that, um, um, they they think they know what they want and they kind of see it all put together and they're like, you know what, this isn't quite working and they want to try something different. And right. Just because like, they know they can, know, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe sometimes, like, you look at it and you're like, yeah, I could have told you that a while ago, right. but uh, we just, you know, we had to get through this process. Right. Or sometimes, you know, you're like, yeah, I kind of agree. It was a good idea, but it just didn't turn, it didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Sure. And, uh, yeah, so you would, I mean, yes, I think that some places and some, uh, you know, filmmakers definitely have the vision and they can kind of make sure that it's locked in and they're like, okay, I like this. And then maybe there's some minor tweaks you have to do later on some of the shots, but they'll generally keep it the same. And that's, that's a huge benefit for everybody because right. um, it kind of locks them in. But unfortunately there's still the, of the ones that like to change their mind of a thousand times before the movie comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I'm actually very fascinated by that. I've actually been looking into virtual production, both in the led wall, as well as the traditional virtual production with camera and object and uh, character tracking. Uh, I'm looking at how that can be enhanced even more through uh, real-time ray tracing. So that's been my, my thing I've been looking at as, uh, uh, in the last several years. And it's been oh, always asking questions about like, well, tell me your experience with virtual production and how is this and like just a workflow. So it's good to hear from you like, yeah, this is pretty good. It's like, I want to try to see what we can do to get to next levels in, in that area. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I am curious to see how far it can really go too, and I, I do want to spend some more time doing some research on it and like looking into mm -hmm. it. Unfortunately, like a lot of times where you're kind of always busy on shows, it's hard to yeah, of get that time to go and do that. But it is yep. very interesting technology to see where that goes and how far they can really push it. Okay. Well, well cool. Well, I know we can't talk about your next project. Can you mention anything about it? Are you doing environments? Is it invisible effects? Is it big shaman effects? I mean, or... um, you know what? I would love to give a little insight on it, but uh, I just also don't want to get myself Let's play it trouble. safe. Let's play it but safe. We'll put it this way. I think it's a really, really cool uh, show that we're working on currently. And um, I think that it's going to be pretty exciting when uh, some information comes out about it. Okay. Well, can you give us a tentative idea of the release date so we can be happy to know about that? You know, I actually don't even know tentatively the release date I oh, know right because it's streaming right it's a streaming yeah, project yeah oh and yeah so. and the streaming ones they don't have as tight a deadline or as, they don't have to do theatrical releases and no no it's uh, like basically until you know they decide to put out a trailer um you know they <laughs> right. they could be whatever day and a lot of times you still don't even know i mean i, re I remember listening to a podcast with uh uh jason bateman uh for ozark and like he was like having a hard time to even figure out when they were going to be releasing the next uh, or the last episodes and i'm like oh man so they kind of keep it tight-lipped and so i actually have no clue exactly when they plan to bring it out right um but I, I think it's gonna be a really fun project like it's a really fun project to be working on i think it's gonna be a really fun you know show to see um and i'm pretty excited it. for it to come out but it's awesome. gonna be a while yet i that's the only thing i can tell you it's gonna be a while not, okay all right yeah, so, it's, so, it's not so anytime it's soon. still early days early days <laughs> yeah point. exactly cool I, well, I wish I could been... give you a little bit more information. I apologize. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't, don't, no, no, please don't. Please don't. Of course, I'm just, I feel like I'm prying at this point. Uh, but uh, listen, Matthew, it's been awesome talking to you, and it was great to hear your history. And, you know, it sounds like Scanline is doing really well and succeeding in, in, in a lot of great ways, and it's always cool to talk mm -hmm. to you guys. Obviously, Chaos has been uh, uh, sort of helping and being part of uh, Scanline's success as much as we can possibly do for you guys so i'm very happy that we're able to do that with you guys as well so yeah, thanks so we, much we for really doing appreciate this, it no thank you so much chris i appreciate it